Support for this episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere is brought to you by MX Publishing, with the largest catalog of new Sherlock Holmes books in the world. New novels, biographies, graphic novels, and short story collections about Sherlock Holmes. Find them at mxpublishing.com. And by the Wes Express, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wessexpress.com. I hear of Sherlock Everywhere, episode 221, The Baker Street Journal. I hear of Sherlock Everywhere since you became a stronger. In a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, a podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. You're Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jack-in-office. <laughs> the game's afoot as we discuss goings-on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the bigger streeter regulars, and popular culture related to the great detective. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Burke Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! Oh, hello there, and welcome once again to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. I'm Bert Wolder. And Bert, do you have all of your issues together? I'm not talking about your psychological issues. I'm talking, of course, about your BSJ issues. I do. I do. I've got them all in front of me like some giant deck of cards, and occasionally I like to shuffle them and read whatever comes to the top. <laughs> well, it's got to be something good every time. There is nary an issue without something, many things, good about them. And we're going to dig right into that. We should note just by way of uh, housekeeping here. This is our 221st episode. Can you believe it? We've made it. Now what? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, it seems almost anticlimactic, except it's yes. not. It's not. Yes. Well, I'd like to thank all the little people who helped us <laughs> along the way. <laughs> Yeah, are you like Jeff Bezos, who's uh, thanking all of the Amazon customers and employees who sent him to space? Oh, yes, uh, absolutely. An employee relations milestone for the year 2021. <laughs> there you go. Well, uh, you don't have to worry about space here. You can get your Baker Street Journal right here on the ground. And we are going to have some special information about the BSJ. It is, in fact... The prize for this episode's canonical couplet. We will give you a year's subscription to the Baker Street Journal if your name is selected at random from all of the winners. So stay tuned after the interview for your chance to win a complimentary year's subscription to the Baker Street Journal. Of course, the show notes for this episode are available at ihose.co slash ihose221. All lowercase, that'll take you to our website where you can sign up for email updates, you can leave us a comment there on the show, or of course you can support the show via Patreon or PayPal if that's your thing. But on Patreon, it gives us an opportunity to send out prizes to thank you for being a supporter. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us keep the lights and electrons on here 
at I Hear of Sherlock everywhere. Well, we are pleased to welcome Steve Rothman, the editor of the Baker Street Journal since 2000. He's been going at it for over two decades. An amazing feat. Steve received his investiture in the Baker Street Irregulars as the Valley of Fear, and he began his Sherlockian scholarship at the early age of 12 and hasn't looked back since. He's an independent scholar with a focus on Christopher Morley, and of course he edited the Standard Doyle Company, Christopher Morley, on Sherlock Holmes, keeping the memory green, uh, to keep the memory green rather, which was a uh, memory of Richard Lancelin Green that uh, Steve edited with Nick Utekin, and of course, everyone's favorite, a remarkable mixture, award-winning articles from the Baker Street Journal. Steve Rothman, welcome to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Bert. It's a pleasure to be on. Um, what is this? I third time, possibly fourth time. I'm not sure, but none I... of us booked, so it's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were on early days with us talking about uh, to keep the memory green. I think that was maybe our second or third episode, if I recall. Oh, yeah. And then you were back with us to talk about the manuscript for The Empty House, I believe, which, of course, is just down the street from you in Philadelphia. So, <laughs> fantastic. It is. There are many empty houses at this time. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> well, but, uh, no, but yes, no, the manuscript is, lives at the Rosenbach uh, Museum and Library, and it's happily there and welcoming visitors if you ever are in Philadelphia. Oh, that is, uh, that's lovely. So um, it's a good thing to see. It's much more impressive in the flesh than it is on the page. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. Just uh, like you, so this is great. How appropriate. Um, so you've been at the helm at the Baker Street Journal since 2000. Can you, and we want to cover a lot of history of the BSJ and what you've seen over that time, but take us back to when you were just a mere reader, of, a subscriber of the Baker Street Journal, and bring us up to the point where you were offered the editorship. Must be a remarkable story. Well, I started subscribing in 1968, possibly 67, but I think it's 1968. So, yes, I'm an old guy. Um, and, yes, I'm a longtime subscriber, although there are some who have subscribed longer. Um, and that was quite a pleasure. I had found one or two issues in used bookshops before that and uh, then had to track down uh, Julian Wolf, who was the then editor and head of the BSI's address, which was very easy to find, um, and make sure that it was really the same as on the cover of the journal that I had. But their libraries used to have big directories of magazines in those days when there were lots of magazines. Um, and so I sent off my $5, which is what it said, and um, he wrote back and said, the subscription is $4, but I got five issues this way and probably throwing him off and driving him crazy uh, from then on. Um, but it was a great deal of fun to start reading these things. The first, one of the first issues that I remember well had several articles based around Star Trek. So popular culture and the Baker Street Journal have always been there. Uh, do not take the word of the elite, um, 
fancier of Sherlock Holmes so much as that of the fan, because the fanboys have been putting this out since 1946. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, fandom in 1946 to us now it seems like you know more of that elite kind of Sherlockian scholarship, but they were just having fun with it back then, just oh, like yeah. we are now. They were indeed. They they were having lots of fun. And remember, this is the same time. Nineteen forty six is more or less the same time as the first um, science fiction uh, fan conventions were occurring. I'm off by a year or two, probably, but it's the same period. So that I'm not sure that Christopher Morley or Edgar Smith knew about those. I would be surprised. But some of their early subscribers did. Certainly, Paul Anderson did. Um, for sure, because he was one of these early folks. And um, it's just, if you take the first issue, take the first issue. Bert has the first issue right in front of him. I have the first issue right in front of me. And you look at the names here. I mean, there's a piece by Vincent Starrett. There's a piece, there's two pieces, actually, by Christopher Morley. One is Jane Nightwork. There's Ralph Boswell and J. Finley Christ. There's Anthony Boucher. There's Lee Wright and Charles Hansen. Um, Herb Starr. There's Helen Yuhusuva, who was um, featured in one of our Christmas annuals just a few years ago. There's H. Bedford Jones, who wrote some of the most amazingly bad mystery stories that you'll ever read in your life. <laughs> um, there's S.C. Roberts. That one is reprinted. That wasn't an original piece for the thing. There's S Esther Longfellow on the distaff side of Sherlock Holmes. So we're thinking women are here in from the very first issue are in here. So Yes, they weren't inviting the women to be members of the Irregulars, but women were regarded as scholars and worthy contributors from the very first. And this is great. I mean, this this is great stuff. Um, and you, know, you think about Edgar. Edgar was there. He had his he had a serious day job, not like you know you or me. Uh, and you know he was busy helping run a serious division of General Motors. And when General Motors was, you know, the word, sorry, Scott, Pache, uh, your former player, but, uh, um, and this is, you know, he starts out altogether. It's altogether fitting that Sherlock Holmes should be honored by the publication of a journal devoted to critical analysis of his life and times. And so we've been doing it ever since. Ever since. Now, now, Stephen, let me ask you. So there you are subscribing to the Baker Street Journal. How long did it take you before you got back to that very first issue? Did you at what point did you start collecting the journal? And I was and able to find a run of the journal in 1975 at a, a local auction house here. I had missed out on one before that. Um don't ask me what I paid for it. I don't remember, but it wasn't anything really unreasonable. A hundred dollars, possibly two hundred dollars. Um, and so it was pretty much everything. By that time, I had some of the issues, many, you know, from 68 on anyway, and some before that, but it was great. It also had some other odd things that you would have been surprised to know and, you know, some true rarities were thrown in there and um, including a picture of the first man to actually play Sherlock Holmes on the stage um, in, in England in under the clock, whose name is escaping me altogether now, but um, is that H.A. Saintsbury? 
Charles Brookfield. Charles, Charles Brookfield, Brookfield, that's right. The immortal Charles Brookfield. Yes. So what did you what did you think when when you because you know you're yeah you know, it's back in the seventies so what did you what did you I mean other than being really excited and obviously you wanted this I mean what did you think when you went back to those very early issues and when did you learn the whole story about I'm just curious I'm when did you learn the whole story about Ben Abramson and so on I'm going to explain how I became a Sherlockian which is different than everyone else's story and makes me possibly the only person born to be the editor of the Baker Street Journal is when I was in seventh grade, um, the New York Times used to have Marlboro Books had a full page ad every Sunday of remainder books. Bert remembers this. I do. And um, they were all dollar books. So I would read it every Sunday and, you know, now and then talk my father into sending off a check and I would give him, you know, a dollar or two, whatever it was. And so one day there was for Sherlock Holmes of Baker Street. I thought, eh, I like Sherlock Holmes. Let's get this. It comes a few weeks later. I start to read Baron Gould. This is the funniest book I ever read. This guy thinks Sherlock Holmes was alive. <laughs> this is a biography of a fictional character. I loved it. I drove my friends and family insane talking about <laughs> for the longest time. And after that, I had to go to the university libraries, Haverford College Library, which I grew up right near. And they had a number of these books um, that had come through the Morley brothers, largely and their friends, you know, and, and, and sent them. So I was able to read a lot of the early scholarship uh, there, and I loved it all. I couldn't wait to find more. So when I got the early issues of the journal, I was thrilled. I just, this was my reading for, you know, a month or two. I just read my way through from the beginning, um, just one a day and pick up the next one, and there we are. Uh, nice to be obsessive, compulsive sometimes. yeah. And, that's grand. Do you do you remember things that made an impression on you? I mean, uh, of course, it's so much you've you've read and consumed so much. It's hard to, I suppose, to recall the first time you read about tracking down the real address, the real location of two twenty one B, and some of all those seminal explorations that were in the early. Chronologies struck me as remarkable but boring reading. Uh, <laughs> I still think chronologies are sort of boring. I love them in their own way, but I. I I can't read them in the same way that I read other things. I, I mean, the essays on, on this stuff were great. The editor's commonplace was truly one of my favorite things. And I was already mad about Morley from about the same time I'd found Baron Gould. So that, um, I was delighted to be able to read all these Morley essays that I hadn't read before. And it made me very happy. So, you know, some of the early stuff didn't do as much for me because I didn't know many of these mystery writers who were, you know, written about as, you know, the cat's pajamas in, in the little comments. And they didn't mean anything. Yes, I'd read one or two Ellery Queens, but I hadn't read a lot of the other people. So it wasn't the same that way. Steve, for our listeners who are not familiar with the origins of the BSJ, uh, we've got this, what, what is now referred to as the old series, and eventually uh, there was a new series. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that transition and, and why it even happened? Sure. In 1946, when the journal started, Ben Abramson, who was a um, rare and used book dealer at this time in New York, uh, he had started out in Chicago, but he was, he did 
published a number of books and he was a good friend of Morley's and Smith's and a number of the other guys who were in New York. And when they were getting all excited about Sherlock Holmes and he'd been selling bits of Sherlockiani for years, he said, well, let's publish it. You know, they wanted to publish a journal. Let me be the publisher, he said. And he did this big fat thing. I mean, the first issue is 108 pages, which is about 50 uh, percent more than we publish in an average journal now. Most of our journals are around 64 to say 72, 78 pages, depending. So he did this and he did it for three full volumes of four each. And then in the fourth one, he was starting to have business problems. He was starting to have breakdowns. Uh, and um, it, he w- had moved from New York to upstate New York, possibly even back to Chicago by the end. I'm not positive uh, keeping his chronology in place, but it was impossible for him to do it. it. He was getting slower. He was having trouble paying the bills. Finally, after three issues of the fourth volume, he stopped. So there was the missing four, fourth quarter. So uh, Actually, it was, it was after one issue of oh, the fourth volume, issue, right? Yeah. Three quarters, perfect. Missing right. three quarters. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. So it's that was in nineteen forty-nine. Right. So th- there they were, and you know they promised the Baker Street Journal will be back. Of course it will. Everybody nodded sagely themselves, saying, "I'm never going to see the money I shelled out for this subscription." But in fact, Edgar Smith was determined to make sure that the journal would come back, and it did in much smaller form. In, in the new series, therefore, was called, to, to, which was mimeographed. It was 40 pages, the, that very first issue of the new series. It came in um, odd little printed uh, green covers. It's fastened with brads, if you remember what brads are. Um, and it doesn't look like much. I mean, the the contributors are the same sort of people. You've got Benjamin Clark, you've got Morley Still, you've got Edgar Smith. You've got some good stuff here, but there's less. But after just one issue, one one volume like this, it went back to being in print in, in its familiar yellow covers, smaller. They were 64 pages from then on. But it came out on a regular basis, which it has managed to continue to do, sometimes a little more irregular some years than others. But nothing's been missed since. It has never ceased publication. And um, even we've turned to um, having a Christmas annual, which Edgar started um, in the mid-50s, and they continued to the year he died. When uh, But when Julian Wolf became editor, after the one issue which had already been prepared by Edgar, he stopped that because, five, let me tell you, five issues a year is a burden. We'll get back to that. But it's <laughs> a burden. <laughs> yeah. Well, with the, I think the interesting thing to note there is even though the publication uh, kind of flagged for a while, uh, interest did not. Interest was still just as high. And there was certainly a backlog of content that uh, Edgar had to work with. And how how was it that Edgar, of all people, who in 1940 basically resurrected the BSI from uh, the doldrums, how was it that Edgar 
himself became the editor of the BSJ as well as the administrator of the BSI. Well, before there was the Baker Street Journal, there were two anthologies of articles, any one of which would be happy living inside a Baker Street Journal. And uh, one was 221B, um, and one was um, Sherlock Holmes, I guess. No, that's not Studies in Sherlock Holmes, was that? Studies in, studies in, in Sherlock Holmes. Oh, Baker Which, Street, Baker Street Studies, you're talking about the Bell piece or the Starrett uh, piece? Uh, there's the Starrett book, which is, um, and there's, and Starrett edited one, and um, that first one, and that would be in the 40s, and then I, Edgar edited one. And I should have looked these up. One is definitely called 221B. Um, <laughs> and you'll excuse me for blanking on this, but it's not actually the journal. Uh, so, um, so that's, so Edgar had done a wonderful job. And he also put out a number of little pamphlets, some bigger, some smaller. He did, um, uh, what was he called Baker Street Inventory, which was an early attempt to have a bibliography of scholarship about Sherlock Holmes, which was, you could do in a hundred pages then, and with even with some comment, and because there wasn't that much. And he, he wrote various little pamphlets and he would publish things. He had an imprint that he called the Pamphlet House that published a number of these things and a few other pieces, including like one on world peace by uh, the popular historian Hendrik Willem van Loon. And um, so that was was enough to make him uh, a very qualified, and he was, in fact, an excellent editor. He put together good issues. He was very careful. Later, he did the uh, limited editions club edition of Sherlock Holmes, which is thoroughly edited. As far as I'm concerned, that is the official text of the canon that we use for any quotations um, in the Baker Street Journal because it's the BSI edition. And and if you have a lot of money, I recommend you buy it. If you have less money, I recommend you look for the Heritage printing of it because it's handsome, it's good reading, it has wonderful introductions by a number of people that we've, most of whom we've already mentioned, uh, Starrett, Smith, uh, Boucher, Christ, possibly. Um, anyway, good reading. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, and, and I think uh, Edgar was uh, professionally in a place where he could afford the ability to do that. One, he had at least uh, four secretaries in his pool that he assigned uh, Sherlockian uh, uh, projects to. And at the same time, his his profession was in the written word. He was the top speechwriter for General Motors and, and was, you know, very, very facile with, uh, with words. So, yeah, I mean, you go back and you read some of Edgar's own material, not just the stuff that he edited of other people, and it's just beautiful prose. And it seems like this was the perfect hobby for uh, a, a man of his stature and talents to have. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so, Stephen, in your... Um comments there you know you referred to all of this rich material that's um been in the journal and how exciting it was for you when you got this you know this first set to go back to the beginning and read all of this what do you what do you when you look back over 75 years of all of this 
Um, what, what do you see? I mean, are we, uh, how do we avoid reinventing the wheel? Do you think there's been in any evolution in the content? Do you see an arc? Do you think there's been, and you mentioned, you know, too, that ever since the very beginning, it's been connected in one way or another with popular culture. So how do you, how do you think about the content of it all? Well, there's several different strands and they all weave, braid together, weave together. Um, and one of them is absolute pure bibliographic scholarship, say, because um, there, from the early things, there have been descriptions of, there's been the section I, you know, on collecting and things like this, where people describe amazing things in their collection or manuscripts and that sort of thing. From um, There have been bibliographies of, like Dave Randall did a whole series of bibliographical descriptions before there was any real, because at that time, the only real bibliography of um, Conan Doyle was a very bad work done by a sort of spiritualist um, Episcopalian minister who was a friend of uh, his widows, and it's not worth getting. Um, <laughs> so there, there was that. There's, as we said, chronologies, things like this. There's were short stories for a long time, and there were poems. Um, I think I've published one poem outside of um, the ones about the annual dinner. Um, I don't think they contribute a lot to Sherlock and things. And there's now so many outlets for pastiche that I, I have never published any pastiche and just turn it down out of hand because you can find it. You're... Both of your sponsors publish some wonderful collections of pastiche. And there are lots of other places you can just put it up online yourself if you can't um, find one of these publishers. So it, it's there and it's easy to find. It's... I'm losing my track. So where, where were we? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's no, you're not, you're, you're completely on track. Um, I'm just interested in, you know, your perspective of having surveyed all of this. For example, as we mentioned, I think earlier, uh, some years ago, you edited a collection of Morley Montgomery award winners. And I suppose for our listeners, we should explain what the Morley Montgomery award winners are. But, um, you know, do you, you know, what are, I'm curious, what are the care in your view, what are the characteristics of those, you know, award winning and, and to this day, we're still giving out Morley Montgomery awards for some, you know, terrific papers. So, you know, to you, what, what constitutes award winning sort of performance? How do you look at the the arc, the history of all the material that that's been in the journal. I mean, do you see a progression, or is it? And how and how do you avoid? How do we avoid as as writers? How do we avoid uh, reinventing the wheel? Well, the reinventing the wheel part is actually probably easier now than ever before because a you can search to see if something's been written before and find out the answer pretty darn fast, and b you can use those same search engines for searching through the canon to find the threads that you want to write about. And you, by doing some clever word searches, you can find some great stuff. I've got a piece coming in the autumn issue on music where some of the mentions of, of music are not ones that people have used before because clearly, although I haven't 
ask the author about this. He did just that sort of word search. So yes, when the, when the first canon came out on uh, diskettes, it was that long ago, um, I, I got it and I said to my wife that I was afraid we would see endless sorts of articles on, oh, flowers in the canon or, you know, colors of bricks or something <laughs> truly stupid. We never really did. Uh, but as these, first of all, you had, I don't know how many discuss there were, there were like 20 or more, uh, maybe it was 30 of them. And you'd have to, you know, keep pushing them in and out of your computer, which was wandering along at 256 baud. And, um, so that's didn't happen, but now we're seeing lots of wonderful things. What amazes me, what really amazes me is how often I'm, are you there? Am, am I frozen? No, you're no, good. No, no. Okay. No, you've said it. Okay. Cause Scott's frozen. That's why I was wondering. Um, what I see is wonderful new stuff comes along all the time. These, you Sherlockians, well, we Sherlockians, you're a clever bunch. You people look at things, puzzle about problems that wouldn't occur to me and sit down and write things now. And, they come out and they make connections from their own reading. And, you know, as I often use as a tagline in the editor's commonplace book, to a Sherlockian, all things are Sherlockian. And um, it's true. I mean, you've walked down the street and you've seen an abandoned aluminum crutch and you know what it means. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> you don't think about someone limping down the street. No, you, you, you know, you see an umbrella and you know Fillmore is around somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to take a quick break, uh, have a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back talking with Steve Rothman, the editor of the Baker Street Journal. Stay with us. Arthur Conan Doyle wrote 22 novels. The one he thought his best is an adventure story of knights and chivalry. 20-year-old Alan Edrickson travels the world encountering bullies, con artists, thieves, a damsel in distress, and two men who become his closest friends. Together they join the White Company, archers and fighters led by the gallant Sir Nigel Loring. Will our hero win the hand of Loring's romantic daughter Maud? Will the chivalrous Prince Edward restore Peter of Castile to his Spanish throne? Published in 1891 and never out of print, The White Company is a tale of pageantry and piracy, heraldry and hope, published now in an exclusive, annotated edition with the original N.C. Wyeth illustrations in blazing color. Don't you owe it to yourself to read Conan Doyle's favorite book? Get the annotated White Company at wessexpress.com. All right, we are back, and Steve Rothman is here talking about all things BSJ, as we call it. Um, Steve, you um, you mentioned, uh, you know, I think what what really resounds with us. You know, I was going to ask, do you think, uh, you know, that these these uh, search engines and all the tools we have at our disposal now make us more lazy or more clever? Clearly, uh, the answer is more clever uh, because we're finding new and different ways to. Uh, discover uh, all things we want to about Sherlock Holmes. How and 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 you receive these these amazing uh, submissions 
I mean, anybody can submit an article to the Baker Street Journal, right? I mean, yes. um, all they have to do is email you or, you know, uh, mail in a copy of the manuscript and you review it. Um, w- when you look at both the volume and the quality of material you have at your disposal now, how is it trending? It's staying about the same. I I usually have enough to be picky, which is good, because that's what an editor has to be, is somewhat picky. I sometimes have things in reserve because I like to try and have some synergy between some of the articles, even if I'm the only person to see that synergy, um, and to have a few articles that in my mind are related in one way or another, like several articles about Mycroft or some things about books or some things about, you know, a a story. And because it strikes me as more interesting um, for the reader and each one then adds something else to the article that came before it. So that seems to work. But yes, people send in... Now, I do find that when an issue comes out, there will be a small rush of articles as they get to people's doors or as social media and Facebook and Twitter and things say, I got my copy of the journal today. People will start not only writing, where's my copy, but um, sending me um, articles that they've just finished, have had around for years, have submitted to me three times before. (laughs) It's and all it's all carefully filed away. I mean, you 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 don't overlook things, right? Aha. Uh-huh. It's like a steel it's cage. A, occasionally, um things do things can get lost and um I never take it amiss when someone writes and says I haven't heard. Uh- <laughs> I, I I I I try and get back to them and to find it cuz sometimes if things come in in a spate like what happens in January is there'll be a whole lot of things. Unfortunately, by shortly after the big irregular weekend, I am Sherlocked out. I'm sure you're Sherlocked out. And um, I really might not open any of that email for a while. And um, I'm embarrassed to say because I need a couple weeks to think about other parts of my life. That's completely understandable. I mean, and, and you know what? This is great to hear because now maybe we can get the word out so people don't have this expectation that, you know, you're there as a magical 24-hour turnaround or something like that, you know? People do tend to think that, and I try and explain that we at uh, the Baker Street Journal, I am the entire editorial staff, <laughs> and, uh, and Steve Doyle is the entire um production staff well he has a little help from i'm mark gagan helps him design the covers but steve's doing the designing and 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 dealing with the printer and ann lewis is dealing with subscriptions and my wife who is a professional copy editor you know looks over the copy for us and and helps find all the things that i've let through and but um that's it it's just a small handful of people so and all of whom have Real jobs, yeah, uh, sort of real, um, and so um, we so, try and do our best. But so, so you mentioned the um, the covers. Uh, that's one of the things uh, in in the BSJ's evolution. I, I want to talk about. There's another thing uh, right after that. But um, a few years ago, 
gosh, maybe maybe 10 years ago now, uh, the BSJ went from being uh, uh, saddle stitch to perfect bound. Uh, so in other words, rather than having the staples in the middle of the journal, it, it now has a, a book-like finish on the end. And with that, the covers to the Baker Street journals began to vary from issue to issue. They always used to be the same. You could count on uh, exactly what would be on the cover of the Baker Street journal, save the, the changing name of the editor every decade or so. Um, talk to us a little bit about the visual evolution of the journal as well. Well, in the beginning, we'll start at the beginning again. Um, the original Baker Street Journal looked very similar to, it has a couple variants in, in the yellow covers over the years until Steve Doyle took it along. The green covers were different, but we'll ignore them. And they had several different silhouettes of Sherlock Holmes. When Steve Doyle took over as um, publisher of the journal, Steve is... Um, one of the proprietors of the Wessex Press and does all sorts of design and production work uh, for a living for Purdue University. And Steve um, said to me, I want to do something different with the cover. And I said, fine with me. I, I said, I have no serious design sense. So um, I'm all for it. And he, he did. He started. So in those first ones, first year, possibly two years, it was black on yellow and because it was still the regular um, stapled issues. And then he said, I've got another idea. Let's see what we can do for this, because I think we can do it affordably, because printing costs have been going down, down, down for over the 20-some years that I've been editor, which is wonderful for us, um, because other costs go up. But so he was able to do these colored covers, and they're marvelous they really are some of them are very clever there's one where there's a number of um moriarty's on the cover and there's one with a number of micros on the cover and um there's some that he's just picked up odd bits of artwork from miscellaneous paperbacks or things like this and he's got a good clip file of sherlockian art and he's been able to use it very cleverly and it makes wonderful things. The last issue had um, a pile of various editions of the complete Sherlock Holmes, which was complementing an article by Russ Merritt, Russell Merritt, on um, the whole history of the complete Sherlock Holmes. So things like this are terrific fun. The, the next issue, uh, the summer issue, is going to come out with a print by a London artist, Lisa Ligro, who had sort of emailed it to me out of the blue. I didn't know who she was. It's a terrific thing of Holmes and a handsome cab in front of 221B, and it makes a lovely um, a lovely cover. And yeah. You know, I, I had talked to Steve early on when uh, the BSJ went to Perfect Bound, and I suggested um, sketching out over a number of uh, issues, uh, kind of a, a silhouette, you know, much like the uh, the, the uh, limited, not, not the limited, the, the uh, folio edition uh, behind me here. Um, that way, you would ensure people had to get subscriptions because if they wanted the, the whole silhouette to appear on their bookshelves, they would have to have a complete run during that time. So <laughs> something to think about. 
It's an interesting idea, Scott. So, Steve, you mentioned uh, bringing back the Christmas annual, a tradition that had run from 1955, I think, through 60, which, of course, Edgar picked up from Jim Montgomery. Jim Montgomery from, I think, 1951 through 1955 had done his own Christmas annuals, and the Baker Street Journal did its official ones. Um, Nothing happened again until 1998. So help us understand why... You chose to do a Christmas annual that year, and why you've continued it nonstop ever since. Well, I can't fully say why we started uh, one in 1998, because that was under Don Pollock's editorship. But I, I would say that he probably was slightly pushed by Michael Whalen, slightly pushed Michael Whalen to do it. And the first one was a collection of essays from uh, members of the five orange pips and then which who had done a collection of their own essays. Actually, I'm going to, I'm going to correct you on that one. I think it was the year before it was 98 because the pips was 99. 98 was uh, the 1940 BSI dinner that Uh, John Wallenberg did. That was done because John had discovered a lot of material uh, that he hadn't included in his, um, his history of the BSI that covered that period. And um, so that was useful. And um, that was at a point where under Philip Schreffler and under Don Pollock, there were many, many issues. There was a lot of, you asked about trends, there was a lot of inward-lookingness, possibly because we were middle-aged. The journal was middle-aged. The Irregulars were middle-aged. Um, as, as an organization. And there was a lot on the history of the Irregulars, some on the history of the journal, many, many issues of that. And, um, to, and there still are articles about histories of the Irregulars and things like this. I try and limit it somewhat and keep it into the uh, annuals because I feel that not all our readers are or ever will be Irregulars. And, um, it doesn't seem fair to me to devote a lot too large an amount of any one issue to something that you know is too insider. Yeah, I mean that, that's probably a, an important reminder for anyone who perhaps has been hesitant to subscribe to the Baker Street Journal. You don't have to be a Baker Street irregular. You don't even have to be a member of any Sherlockian organization. All you have to do is love Sherlock Holmes. Love Sherlock Holmes enough to go to uh, the Baker Street Irregulars website and and check out some of the samples there and to to see what uh, fits and you know maybe uh, maybe take out a a subscription for a year. That would be nice. Um, <laughs> one of the things that we haven't mentioned so far is cartoons. And of course, for years, our friend Scott Bond did a wonderful, has done a wonderful series of Sherlockian cartoons. But Stephen, why don't you talk a little bit about, you know, the, that humorous aspect of the journal? When, and I don't even, I don't remember when it started. The, what was the first cartoon? I don't well, remember. Really, there may have been one or two things before, but Scott's was the first cartoon and that occurred under Peter Blau's editorship. Um, so, and so I think Scott managed to do basically um, 30 
some years of this. Um, wow. Almost or close to it. And so it was a terrific, maybe it was even under Johnny Lindsay Meyer. I'm not sure. But, um, but Scott, Scott was there every year till it's become a little too much of a burden for him. And so he has to step down and we miss him. We've had a few other people have done uh, cartoons as well. Um, I'm hoping to try and find some other cartoonists possibly. I care a lot about cartoons. Um, I gave a very large collection of books on comic books and cartoons and things like this to the University of Pennsylvania a few years ago. And um, so they mean a lot to me. So I'm picky. But um, nonetheless, I if I see something that's good, it makes me happy. And I, even though we've gone for over a year without any cartoon, I think it has a place in the journal. It, it helps break up the book and allows us to have the bits with the root book reviews and um, other little bits in the back and and the other editorial stuff in the front. So it, it does something important. Yeah. I, I, I didn't know that about you, that you had, you know, that, oh, well, obviously you had an appreciation for it, but I didn't know you had that sort of a collection. Do you have favorite illustrators or cartoons from from the past? Have you been a fan of the New Yorker cartoons and People like Bob Mankoff, who was editing the cartoons in the New Yorker for years. I, 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 well, Mankoff was not my favorite cartoonist or editor of cartoons for the journal. I mean, if I had a favorite, it would be Thurber. But, uh, <laughs> but I love the comic strips. I seriously love comic strips. And I, I grew up reading them all, you know, all of them. Wendy Winkle, Pogo, I didn't care. It's Pogo, a, uh, Pogo. So um, I did my best to find any books I could with this stuff. Unfortunately for me, wonderful collections of all these things started to come out just at the time where I had given all this stuff away. So I wasn't, I, and I haven't been pursuing it in the same way because, you know, it's the libraries now. If they want to add to things, they should buy them. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's also a lot of comic books, you know. There's Superman, there's Batman, there's Donald Duck, uh, there's Archie. I, yeah, I was, well, yeah, well, Scott, Scott Bond, you know, would talk. Uh, I remember he gave a lovely talk at the Copper Beaches one year about his influences, including Carl Barks, who mm-hmm. I think did, because I'm also a fan, obviously, who did uh, those Archie. Disney, those Donald Duck cartoons. Your, your shoulder there, Bert, so. Oh, yes, yes, there he is. Yeah, um, you know, Steve, I, I think. This idea of visually breaking up uh, the flow with, uh, with 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 cartoons is uh, great. Obviously, the humor works well, and and these are uh, of a time uh, to to a certain extent. I mean, we 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 take humor usually uh, in things that we know, things that we're familiar with, things around us, um, and and that leads me to to think about you know where. The BSJ, the Baker Street Journal, sees itself with respect to everything that's going on on the Internet right now. I mean, there's so much that happens at the speed of electrons, and the Baker Street Journal still maintains its quarterly pace. Um, how do you kind of reconcile the the existence of the Baker Street Journal and uh, side by side the existence of, say, uh, the Baker Street Journal Twitter account? 
Well, I am the Baker Street Journal Twitter account, as you know, Scott. Uh, and um, which has been an amusing exercise for me, although I at times I've let it lapse more than others. But I try and find particular quotations that might refer to something that's in the headlines. I pay attention to Conan Doyle's chronology and the publication chronology. And so I, I can use things like that to put things up. I'm, I don't just put up a miscellaneous quotation every day. I, I'll say that on this day uh, in 1942, Basil Rathbone brushed his teeth. Uh, <laughs> that I do, but I, <laughs> but I might. Uh, and so, um, so, you know, that, that part amuses me in a way that feeds the historian in me and um, being able to occasionally subtweet um, a current event also amuses me. I mean, there were a number of tweets about viruses and infections and injections and um, things like that at the beginning of the pandemic. I'm weary of the pandemic, so I'm not looking for anything like that now. We're all weary of the pandemic. Um, but it's, you know, it's fun to play with Twitter, and that's one way we can do this. Now, yes, but I know what you're really leading up to. Where do I see the journal going? I don't know. I think we're going to be in print as long as we can. If print costs go up astronomically, will we be able to? Possibly not. Um, but Steve and I have not had a discussion like this. Uh, Steve and Michael Keane and I have not had a discussion about anything like this. I think... We can say, you know, as Edgar said in one of his editorials, yes, Virginia, there is a Sherlock Holmes, and yes, Virginia, there will always be a Baker Street Journal. And um, there will, in some form. If we yeah. have to put it up electronically and it will occur electronically, there are some wonderful journals that only appear electronically. Um, so we could do that. We could do things in make them much more attractive than they already are. And they're very attractive now, but we could have lots more interactive stuff. But that's not for me to decide. Well, I, well, I, I, think, I, one, I think one thing that you... Thing that you well, I'm getting I'm out of getting it. Yes, yes, me too. too. Should we pop, we pop out, out back in? I just updated that, so... Oh, okay. good. Um... Steve, let me mute you for just a second, see if that it helps. It seems to be gone now. Uh, testing, one, two. Okay. Um, so one of the things that I think we've seen just in the evolution of the journal is years ago, there used to be a whole bunch of pages toward the back dedicated to <laughs> society notes. What's going on and who gave a toast and how many pieces of chicken were eaten and on and on and on. And as as your editorial eye uh, very deftly saw, that's kind of boring, and it doesn't really add to uh, the the meaning of the journal. It almost seems like online 
uh, you know, some kind of summation. If people still want to see something like that, then they could, whether it's their, their site, uh, their, their uh, Sherlockian organization has a blog or a website or a Facebook page. There are methodologies now for sharing that kind of information more widely so people can discover that. But the journal is really meant for what the journal uh, began as, uh, which, which is a scholarly, uh, uh, piece of, um, uh, a place to share ideas and insights and, uh, things that are exciting. Yes, Scott, we've let the society notes just drift away. They were, we were getting fewer and fewer of them. And now, um, that Ross Davies is including a large section on, um, the various Sherlockian societies in his annual Baker Street Almanac, which is available either in print or online, um, although just once a year, it seems that that covered that part of our history, which was the only real reason that I was continuing it as editor, because I thought it gave a record. But if the various groups didn't really want to send it, and we were really getting to the point where we were getting very few, so we said goodbye to that. Um, <laughs> completely fair. And it fits directly in with, uh, episode 219 with Ross Davies talking about the Baker street almanac. So thanks for the plug, Steve. There you go. You're, you're a natural. So, um, let me ask you this. I don't know if this has been brought up before, but one of the things that we hear uh, from people every year on is, Oh, I missed the, uh, I missed my subscription. Uh, and I want to go back and get the annual. The annual used to be sold separately. Um, now it has to be, uh, well, it can only be read as part of an annual subscription. It, a lot of headaches uh, go away that way, but also it ensures people keep subscribing. Um, and there are annuals of the past that have now sold out. Uh, there, there are still some that are individually available, but many, many of them are sold out. Would you ever consider putting together a uh, a publication of just the annuals. Well, Steve and I have talked about, and you know, possibly may issue some themed collections of annuals. Like there've been a number on um, theaters and and movies and things like that. There've been a number on individuals, and so they fall into a few different groupings and. That might make some sense. There's been a, a, a number on just irregular sort of history bits, and I could see doing it that way to just issue um, two fat books collecting uh, 22, 23 annuals seems kind of cruel to the reader because you can get miscellaneous stuff. Um, yeah, well, I, I think the benefit, you know, coming from a, an editorial standpoint is when you have more material to work with, that allows you to see trends, to see themes that begin to pop out, just as you've said. And then it becomes a compelling work. And it, it, it then appeals to people perhaps outside of uh, the normal audience that would have uh, pursued it originally. And then, then it'll go to theater people, to entertainment people, to uh, biographers of the future. Who knows? Exactly. Who knows? Um, but it's, it's a hope and it's, it may be something that we will pursue, um, in the future. It's so the, the fifth issue, the doing an annual is tough work. When I, I have them assigned out 
a few years in the future, and please don't ask me who's coming up after this year because um, I won't remember. But um, I do ask when whoever is putting the ad- annual together to get me copy by the beginning of July at the latest so that I have time to fit that in with getting up the last two issues of the year and so that I'm not overwhelmed and Steve's not overwhelmed and we can get everything through and with any luck, get it into your mailbox by Christmas. That's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. So, so speaking of the future, Steve, this is the 75th anniversary of the Baker Street Journal. This is your 22nd year as editor. How much longer do you think this is going to go on for? <laughs> Me? Oh, I don't know how long I'm, I'm good for, you know, um, that's that's a oh you don't mean me personally both um, both let's let's do both I don't know I don't know I I did what I thought was the proper thing when Michael Keane became uh, the new Wiggins and I I said to him Michael if you want me to resign if you want to find another editor I understand and that would be fine and he assured me that he liked the job I was doing. I have no reason to think yet that he's changed his mind um, because I do serve at his pleasure. And I, but I'm still having fun. As long as I'm having fun, I'm going to do it for at least a little bit longer. Nick Utekin, my friend Nick Utekin, uh, who you mentioned earlier, edited uh, the Sherlock Holmes journal for 30 years, but he started in his 20s. Um, I didn't. I'm never going to be able to do 30 years of editing the Baker Street Journal. However, I put out many more issues. Nick put out six. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I mean, I did that 12, you know, in the first 12 years. So um, I've now, you know, done whatever, uh, over 100 issues, So, which, which is um, kind of a remarkable thing. And I've d- done it longer than any other editor, um, which is also remarkable. Because this is not a job I craved, not a job I sought, not a job I ever saw myself doing. And when I had my mis- a, a call from Michael Whalen in offering it to me, it was in 1999 in the spring. And I said yes, because it was a good time in my life to do it. And... I've been pleasantly surprised and pleased and with the fun I've had, with the friends I've made, with the people I've gotten to know better uh, in the Sherlockian and the irregular communities both. Um, Any regrets? <sighs> regrets? Not really, Scott. I, I think I... I always think everyone probably thinks they could have done a better job. Um, uh, Then you've done, I probably could have been and possibly should be more aggressive in soliciting manuscripts than I have been. Um, Although I do some of that. My, my, no, I, I think I don't really have any regrets. I have, um, other than what I've done to poor Janice and making her have to listen to Sherlock <laughs> even more than she was before. Um, I've enjoyed it. I hope I've done something 
lasting and meaningful for not just for the BSI, but for the whole wider Sherlockian community. I've tried my best to cover things like the younger Sherlockians and the various online fandoms, you know, phenomenons like the IHOs, like the Baker Street Babes, all these other groups that are so much going on, these various cons that have happened. Um, I've tried to have people write about things that don't, I don't understand. And I, I gives me a chance to understand them more like, uh, cosplay. I don't understand because I don't know why people want to go around dressed up like that, but they do. It makes them happy. This is cool. And so it, it, it made me happy to have someone who did this on a semi-professional basis, write about it for me. I mean, if I was just writing articles that just appealed to me, they would be on bibliography. They would be on <laughs> for everybody to cheers. And that's okay. Um, so I don't. I mean, sometimes they come along. I've had some wonderful things. One of the articles that won the Morley Montgomery Award was by um, Costa um, Rosakis, who was an amazing collector, talking about determining really what's the first issue of the Beaton's Annual Christmas Annual. And he did helps having two of them together. And, and he went around and looked at a lot of others to really determine things. Now, I'm sure many people thought this was the dullest article they'd read yet. And they hadn't read the ones on chronology. But um, I was fascinated by it. And I thought it was a good thing. And I'm not the one who awards the Morley Montgomery Prize, in case you want to know. There's always a board of judges. They change every year. And um, all I do is give them a short list, but I tell them that they're free to choose among anything that was published that year in the journal, other than the Christmas Annual, because I don't feel it's fair to compare an issue size uh, piece with a 10-page piece. It's, um, you know, otherwise it would just go to the Christmas Annual every year, and that seems cruel. Yeah, well, <laughs> hey, I mean, look, that's... That right there is the perfect ad for the Baker Street Journal. The, the annual alone makes it worth uh, the price of subscription. But then, of course, you get four other issues, too. So, um, well, Steve, this has been fascinating. I mean, we could obviously sit and talk with you for hours and hours, but um, nobody wants to hear that. Well, I mean, Bert and I do. <laughs> but um, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much, not only for sitting with us and talking with us, but for what you do for the wider Sherlockian community, we are all the richer for it. Well, thank you, Scott. Thank you, Bert. It's been fun. I hope uh, that this brings some more subscribers. Thank you for letting us publicize the journal and celebrating our birthday this way. And I always enjoy listening to IHOs, and I know you have many, many listeners who do. He was born to this. You know, it's a great thing when, when you're talking to Steve to have him just sort of admit the fact that he was born to this. I mean, he was just, just genetically and from a destiny standpoint and from a personal interest standpoint and a talent and skill standpoint uh, molded for this job. And I think that one of the things we didn't get into 
you know, which is probably just as well, is that it's a thankless job. I mean, you know, you've got <laughs> lots of emails to open. You've got a whole bunch of people all around the world writing things. Not all of us, you know, are the next um, E.B. White or Russell Baker in our essays. And, um, you know, people want to know what you thought. You don't have time to do everything. You know, you've got to send people reasonable suggestions. Maybe you want to do this or maybe you want to do that. You have to read everything. It's uh, it's um, it's a big deal. Really is a big it's deal. It's a lot. Absolutely. And and look, I think the the real magic here is not just in the administration and, and running of the journal, it, it's in its longevity. It's in that it, it is still going. And people have, like Steve said, people have no lack of content, no lack of ideas as to what they're going to write about. And yet it has to maintain its place of, well, I guess seniority or seriousness. Um, but at the same time, it needs to appeal to newer and younger members of the Sherlockian tribe. And I think it's a, it's a balance that needs to be struck. And Steve Steam seems to be doing it quite well. So uh, kudos to him. And here's to another 75 years of the Baker yeah. Street Journal. We're here. Uh, you may recall us speaking to playwright David McGregor here on episode 140. The good news is our friends at MX Publishing now have some of David McGregor's work in stock. Three new books by David McGregor, including Sherlock in Love, the Holmes Adler Mysteries. These are a triptych of plays that first appeared at the Purple Rose Theater in Chelsea, Michigan. The Adventure of the Elusive Year. The Adventure of the Fallen Souffle, and The Adventure of the Ghost Machine. All three are creative and bring Holmes into contact with other people whom you may have heard of, including Vincent Van Gogh, Auguste Escoffier, and Tesla and Edison. Adding to the other group of books is David's two-volume series, Sherlock Holmes, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. In these books, David takes us on a journey through the late 1800s, early 1900s, through the end of the 20th century and into the 21st, as Sherlock Holmes has been played by so many different actors and was brought to life by so many different forces. David takes us through these various times and introduces us to names that you may be familiar with and names that may be new to you. All three of these books are available at mxpublishing.com today. Well, as this is our 75th, not our 75th, our 221st <laughs> episode, our anniversary, we have some listener mail that we'd like to get to. It's been a while oh, since we've uh, since we've read your mail on the air and lots of people wrote in, so we we are selecting a few choice missives of uh, people who wanted to write in and offer their congratulations. So first we have a note from Gus and Luke from the Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes podcast. Which, by the way, if you haven't had a chance to listen to that pod podcast, it is, I think, one of the best shows out there. Um, particularly coming from us, we are we are big Granada fans here. Uh, but uh, Gus and Luke joined us here on uh, I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere 
gosh, uh, episode 203, I think it was. So it'd be great to go behind the scenes with them there. But they write, they say, congratulations on the epic milestone of the 221st episode of IHOS. Your podcast is the example by which all other Sherlock podcasts are judged. We hope you're marking this achievement with a very large glass of champagne, if Mrs. Hudson can be roused, or at the very least, a tipple of sherry, socially distanced, of course. No, that's I, we 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 actually should have planned that ahead, Bert. I, I feel bad that we didn't have our our beverages out here. Um, but they have a question for us. With all the guests from varying backgrounds and involvement in the world of homes that you've had on your show over the years, what was the biggest Sherlockian scoop you ever received? The biggest Sherlockian scoop, huh? Well, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, we've got great relationships with um, many of the people that we have on our show, um, and we, we do get uh, occasional tips here and there. I think thinking back, you being able to score, um, uh, gosh, back on episode 26, I think it was, Bert, uh, Fritz Weaver to come on the show. Fritz Weaver, who of course was Sherlock Holmes on Broadway in the 1960s, that was a that was a scoop. Although it wasn't news based, we we uh, were able to get him as a guest, which was great. Um, yeah, well, we've done. You know, I think that the um, the conversation that we had with the author of the Enola Holmes series, mm-hmm. you know, while while you know, not a scoop, but in terms of. Um, her candor and her explanation of her process. And, um, you know, I just thought that from a standpoint of talking to a creator, that was fascinating. Yeah. But, you know, it, it is an interesting question. We, um, uh, you know, we've talked to so many creators, Ken Ludwig. We've talked to mm-hmm. Jeff Hatcher. Um, Burt Cools, be- you know, the, the BBC radio yeah. series. And, of course, Clive Marison, the Sherlock Holmes right. on that series. That was a nice a nice couplet there. Yes, well, and Stephen Moffat. And, um, oh, and Suver, too, yeah, from uh, BBC too. Sherlock, yeah. But so. it would be interesting to, um, we haven't, oddly enough, you know, we haven't really focused on it. But if there is something coming out, you know, it would be grand to talk to. Uh, director, writer, producer, somebody, uh, you know, and we can certainly pursue people like that um, in advance of something actually being released. That would be a lot of fun. Mm, it would. We haven't really, you know, taken that as a priority, but it's a great idea. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's a good uh, suggestion. So uh, they have a follow-up question, too, which is, um, who was the Sherlockian guest that got away? <laughs> so many <laughs> well sadly any of the actors who've passed on i think it's uh... well yeah i mean we have we have had inquiries out to uh, a number of familiar names people that you would probably recognize uh roger moore sir roger moore turned us down um michael cox unfortunately we couldn't get to him before he passed on um, Colin Jevons, who is Inspector Lestrade from uh, the Granada series, his son turned us down on behalf of his father. Yeah. Um, oh gosh, Christopher also, Christopher Plummer too. Christopher Plummer, yep. Yeah. Um, 
You know, we've been trying and trying for years to get Rebecca Eaton on. Rebecca Eaton, of course, is the executive producer from uh, WGBH in Boston who brought over the Jeremy Brett Granada series and um, has shown no interest uh, via her staff in uh, in joining us here. And, and that's unfortunate because we would really like to get the, the behind-the-scenes scoop there. And, and Gus and Luke, I'll tell you what, you've actually managed to go down a rabbit hole that uh, we had hoped to go down in a series of interviews we were planning called The Ladies of Granada, uh, where we were uh, hoping to get Barbara Wilshire and Betsy Brantley and a few of those other ladies from that famous photograph with Jeremy Brett. So, um, hey, if you want to cross-promote and, and, and cross-germinate guests, we're happy to do that. But uh, <laughs> we feel like you guys have trod the stage there with them. So we uh, we do appreciate the work that you put in. You know, the challenge, I mean, just to, just to underscore the difficulty of some of this, the challenge is that when you're talking to some of these actors, you know, while, while these performances loom large for us, for them, you know, it's like an afternoon. I mean, it was a three day shoot. I had this little role. I had a few lines. Uh, you know, in the course of a career, great many of these people actually, although they, they're sort of loath to admit it, they don't really you know, remember <laughs> yeah. what, you know, wait a minute. That was before <laughs> I was, uh, I was six months, you know, in Birmingham doing this. And that was after, uh, yeah, I remember that, you know, kind of, how did you get it? Well, you know, my agent called me and said, what are you doing Wednesday? You know, and, I mean, that's not everybody, but that's, that's kind of it. Yeah. You know? I mean, when, uh, certainly when we're, you know, what is it? 35, 40 years on from, uh, from the production, it, it little difficult to remember. So, mm. oh, uh, you know, one other thing I, I uh, should mention, uh, Gus and Luke, that uh, we had tried to get an interview on the show with Mitch Cullen, the author of A Slight Trick of the Mind, which was the basis for Mr. Holmes with Ian McKellen. Now, at the time, this was back in 2015, um, uh, Cullen and the producers of that film were being sued by the Conan Doyle estate. And we thought, boy, wouldn't it be great to understand what's happening behind the scenes? Well, no. <laughs> lawyers, lawyers don't like that idea. So we did no. get a written interview with Mitch Cullen uh, where, you know, the lawyers could look over his responses before he sent them in. And that was actually very eye-opening. Uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. But uh, we couldn't get Mitch uh, Cullen on to speak uh, directly. So missed out on that opportunity. We also have an email from Mark Jones. Mark says, hello, Scott and Bert. Congratulations on reaching the canonical 221. IHOS is always entertaining, educational, and informative, and a highlight of my listening week. I first found the podcast about 10 years ago and binged it while painting my living room. <laughs> my wife came in and said, what the hell are you listening to? <laughs> and you've been a regular fixture on my, of my podcast listening ever since. How you have the energy to do this after all these years, I can only marvel. You make me tired just thinking about it. Enjoy the moment, and I look forward to catching up with you in person, hopefully in January. All the best, Mark. Well, that's great. And doings of Doyle, you know, Mark's podcast is absolutely terrific, and I'm I just love. In fact, I I, re, I listened again recently to uh, 
one of his discussions about Brigadier Gerard, which mm. is always a favorite of mine, how the Brigadier held the king. I think that was about a month ago, how the Brigadier held the king and how the king held uh, Gerard, uh, the Brigadier. Yeah. Episode, that was episode 15 of uh, Doings of 15, Doyle. A lot yeah, of fun. They're coming along nicely there. You know, another fine podcast to listen to if you're collecting Sherlockian podcasts. So, um, let's see. And finally, we have a note from Madeline Quinones. She says, uh, hey, Scott and Bert, I'd been hoping to give you this message through a phone call. Uh, having a difficult time finding quiet time and space in my house. So here's an email, an email instead. Uh, I think I've listened to a couple of episodes here and there in the past, but I started seriously listening to the show when you did the Lellenberg tribute. Oh, I didn't, good. I didn't know terribly much about Mr. Lellenberg as a person, so I really appreciated the episode. Although, I know, that's a sad way to be introduced to someone. Uh, I don't know why I've never commented on the show before that. I've been subscribed to your emails forever. But I'm here now, and I've been working my way back through the show through this year, last year, 2019, and now I'm almost done with 2018, having listened to the progression of canonical couplets from how it started without its signature music and Bert's hilarious answers to the version (laughs) of the game that we now know and love today. And listening has been so much fun and a much-needed de-stressor while working. Listening to the two of you banter, listening to the cool people you've interviewed, I've learned a lot. Thank you so much for all the work you put into this and for sticking with it all this time. The first Sherlock Holmes podcast. Dang. God bless (laughs) and keep up the good work. Oh, that's very gratifying. How nice that is. Yeah. Well, uh, Madeline, don't be disappointed as you work your way back through the catalog as the quality of the episodes deteriorates. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If we only knew then what we know now, uh, we could have upped some of the production quality and perhaps some of our insightful questions. Now, now, when you go back through the catalog and the quality deteriorates, that's just a law of thermodynamics. You know, it's, <laughs> it can't be it's helped. How, yeah, it's how the universe operates. So, uh. ah, there it is. It's that signature music that everyone knows. Yes, that means it's time for canonical couplets. Everyone's favorite Sherlockian quiz show, where we give you two lines of poetry and expect you to develop the actual name of the story, just out of thin air. Now, if you were with us here last time on episode 220, you will recall that this was the clue we gave. An amateur tenor, charming, only 34 How could his scheme bring England to the very brink of war? Bert, it's all you. (laughs) No, it's easy. That's an easy one. This is the story that Holmes tells us himself. He's retired in Sussex, and he tells us about a strange infestation of mites at a circus. And that's the adventure he called The Lion's Mange. I, uh, yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, no, no, actually. What a, no. what a surprise. Well, I know you're, you're really taking it back here. No, 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 that is not it. Uh, and, and Eric Deckers also threw his uh, hat into the ring for this as well. Not the circus ring, but uh, he said it's the story of the long necked, long legged bird that laid 12 eggs at one time. It's the adventure of the fecund crane. No, sorry, wait. It's the adventure of the second stain. Which, if that stain had such a wonderful time, Eric wonders, what happened to the first stain? Well, Eric, that's a question that is lost to the ages, I'm afraid. Well, as you intuited, the answer to this uh, canonical couplet is indeed the adventure of the second stain. And so what we will do now is we will pull out the big prize wheel and give it a big spin. Watching it go around, it lands on lucky number 35. 35, and we will look into our... Our crystal ball here and see who that was. Why it is, well, it looks like it's Josh Harvey. Josh, congratulations. We have a lovely gift for you. What is it? I forget what we're giving away last time. Oh, yes. It's, uh, we are going to give you, uh, your choice of a book from MX Publishing. Uh, they are, uh, publishers of Rob Nunn's uh, the Criminal Mind of Baker Street. And, of course, uh, you can have your choice from MX Publishing, one of our sponsors here on the show. So enjoy that. Now, this time around, we mentioned earlier in the show that we are going to give you a year's subscription to the Baker Street Journal. Now, don't worry. If you already subscribe to the journal and you happen to win this episode's canonical couplet, we will renew your episode and renew your episode, renew your subscription <laughs> for a year. And please make sure you're subscribed to this show as well. Uh, we will we will make sure that you have an additional year of the Baker Street Journal for your reading pleasure. So let's go to the the couplet for this episode. The lantern showed a servant squatted on his knees. It seems a housemaid scarpered to a land beyond the seas. If you know the answer to this week's canonical couplet, put it in an email addressed to comment at IHearOfSherlock.com with canonical couplet in the subject line. If you are among all of the correct answers and we choose you at random, you will win that Baker Street Journal. Good luck. Well, here we are, Bert. The end of 221. Boy, oh boy. I guess that means 222 is next. You know, you have an ability to predict the future that I find occasionally awe-inspiring. It's only because I'm looking backward. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Well, years ago, you know, the goons on the BBC did a pop, which was Peter Sellers, Spike Milligan, and Harry Zekum, did a a song called I'm Walking Backwards for Christmas. <laughs> Which we will have to play when we get closer to the holidays. There we go. I'll look forward to it. Well, in the meantime, this is the celebratory Scott Monty. And I'm the overly enthusiastic Burt Wilder. And together, for the 221st time, we say The, the Games of Foot. Of foot. <laughs> The games of foot. 
That in the pleasure of this conversation, I am neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be my dear fellow. Very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes.